Hi, I'm Raymond from Insert Quest here. My pronouns tonight are he, him. Uh, joining me today is Olivia Hill, a game developer involved with more projects than I really know how to name. Um, thank you for being on, Olivia. Uh, would you please tell us your pronouns and a little bit about yourself? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I, I'm, I'm a she, her, um, and you can call me Liv if you'd like. Um, I have done a lot of work all over. Um, currently doing some independent projects. Uh, my new game, Machine Zeit, second edition, is the second edition of the first game I ever made. Um, and I've done a lot of work all over with like um, White Wolf, um, CCP, um, Catalyst, um, Green Ronin, uh, Margaret Weiss, a whole bunch of places. Um, so I've, I've done a lot of work with like World of Darkness and that kind of thing and a number of other games. Yeah, wow. Cool. Uh, so we normally like to start with where people, where, where how you first got interested in role-playing games and, and games in general, and then how you moved from a player, and I use that to refer to GMs as well as what people traditionally call players, into that creator and design space. Uh, so how did you first get interested in role-playing games? Well, whenever I was um, relatively young, I guess like seven or eight, um, I had some friends who played Dungeons and Dragons with their parents. Um, but I And I kind of like watched a couple times and sort of sat in a couple times, but I was never really interested in it. Um, then when I was just about 12 or maybe 11, uh, so pretty early on, um, Vampire the Masquerade came out. And I had a group of um, friends that were interested in that. Um, and I thought that that was pretty cool and interesting because I was a little, you know, edgy kid, um, you know, going into high school. Um, and so I played vampire with them. Um, and that was my real introduction to role-playing games. Um, and, you know, I, I grew out from there. I played a lot of different things. I did, you know, a lot of tabletop games, a lot of LARPs, um, a lot of online games, that sort of thing. Um, and I feel like there's there was no real point where I wasn't acting in a designer capacity or a developer capacity because when I started playing vampire, I was, um, I was a, you know, little poor kid and all we had was like one copy of the core book. And we were working off of like photocopies of things. And we were working off of stuff we found on websites and things like that. Um, and so most of the material we ended up using was stuff that we ended up coming up with. Um, and seeing that in action, seeing the things that my friends and I were making and watching how they either sunk or swam at the table was my first real exposure to that. Um, and that instinct sort of evolved, you know, as time went on, you know, I would run games, I would, um, you know, tell stories in, you know, Vampire, Shadowrun, whatever. And in doing that, I was sort of making worlds um, because most people don't really play things straight out of a book. Um, and that's that's the first step towards designing things. Um, so when it finally came around, you know, about oh, 10 years ago, roughly, um, that some of the White Wolf writers were looking, or the developers were looking for writers, um, my wife had recently started doing a little bit of writing and there was a, there was an all call um, for, or not even an all call. It was a filler position. Um, and I just sort of put myself forward. Um, and that's just kind of how it went. Like um, basically my wife was like, Hey, can you, 
uh, can, you know, can, can my wife be considered for this position um, to the developer who needed an emergency fill job? And the developer was like, I don't know, send her, send some samples over. So I sent samples over and it worked. And then it just sort of snowballed from there. I've been doing it for, you know, about a decade. So about a decade ago was when you started uh, officially, I guess, or in a, or in a official capacity working for, um, the, the, that would have been at that time, the new world of darkness line. Um, probably what it was, yeah, called? Yeah, yeah. it was new world of darkness. Yeah. That was when I started playing role-playing games. <laughs> oh, cool. 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 And that was the second role-playing game I've played. And it was also the first game role-playing game where I wrote my own supplementary mechanics for, I wrote a couple of, I wrote a couple of fighting style merits. Uh huh. And actually, did I write a couple? I wrote a couple, I think. And uh, one or two contracts for Changeling. Oh, cool, cool, cool. I ended up, um, for a while, I was a developer for Changeling. But um, yeah, that was about 10 years ago. And uh, I think that those games really lend themselves very well to encouraging people to make their own stuff. I I remember the, the, the sample that I sent in at the time. Like, it's probably... Um, you know, not the greatest by today's standards, but um, the sample I sent in was a magic item that was for, for Werewolf the Forsaken, and it was a crowbar um, that was enchanted to do more harm to um, a target who had a high resources score. Um, so basically, oh, okay. yeah, it was it was for beating up rich people. Um, and the developer, Chuck Windig, loved it. So he was like, yeah, like, let's let's do this. That's pretty wild. Um, <laughs> cool. And and where have where did you where have you moved in terms of um, your design work uh, recently? I um, I would say maybe the last few, maybe like the last year or so. Uh, what sort of stuff have you been working on? Well, um, I I took a pretty big break for the last few years. Um, basically, like I stopped working with um, the Onyx Path TCP White Wolf sphere of things as a freelancer um, in the last couple of years. Um, and I, I sort of took a break. I was doing some other work. I, I was um, doing video game design full-time, which is very full-time. Um, and so in the past few months, like the past, well, the past year, I've been really focusing on trying to accommodate my, my limited ability to digest stuff. I keep like a lot of times friends, um, fellow designers and stuff will hand me their games and it's like 350 pages. Um, mm-hmm. It's really dense. It, there's a high learning curve. And I couldn't do it. I was I was trying to read these games and digest this information with no time. You know, already doing overtime work, already trying to like, I was writing novels at the time, had no time, no ability to, to, to focus on so much density of information. Um, and I realized that as I as I sort of grew older and sort of changed in my preferences and things, I wanted things to be more, more concise. Um, and instead of the focus on like these big, huge, like all inclusive projects that I've been working on, like I had recently developed um, Vampire the, the Masquerade 20th edition um, Dark Ages book, 550 pages, absurd, absurd oh, thing. And so I, I was like of a mind that, I needed games that were like 60 pages or less. And of course these things exist, but they didn't necessarily fill the same design space. 
Um, like you could get sixty page and under games. I had made sixty page and under games. I have a I, I have a game that is seventy seven words. It fits on a business card, double sided. Oh my god! Yeah. <laughs> I uh, that's actually a really funny one. I uh, whenever we were talking about um, vampire potentially for the fifth edition. Um, when Onyx Path was still potentially doing that, we were all giving ideas and stuff. And my idea was I wanted a core book that was 60 pages or less, and I wanted a core rule system that could be printed on a business card. Um, that way you could hand it to the other players, and they know how to play. It's just right there. And, um, you know, one of the other developers was like, well, you know, but how do you do that? Like, that's a good idea, but how do you do it? So I did it. Um, yeah. And, so it was, you know, we were we were talking about it and considering it, but then um, the White Wolf stuff got bought out by Paradox Interactive, and so that was all, you know, useless wheel spinning. Um, but yeah, so like, I don't know the the short games that I've seen don't necessarily fill all of the design space and sort of world building space that I'm interested in because I do like, you know, sort of enriched worlds. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I like that that you know that building. I like seeing other people's ideas sort of. Um, blossom but i don't want it all up front so i was pitching that we do like you know a little book every now and again like we do a book uh, a 40 page or a 60 page book every month or two um and that's much easier for a person who's working full time that's much easier for someone who wants to read while they're you know on the train to and from work um and i've been moving heavily toward that my 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 first game, Machine Sight, was like 150 roughly pages. It's not a huge, dense game. Um, but the second edition is only 50 pages mm-hmm. because I wanted to, to sort of filter it down to the core uh, of the experience. And I think it's a lot better for it. And now I get to do all this other stuff. Like we've got a couple of books planned to flesh out this world and to do more fun things with it. But we didn't have the pressure to do this really high production value thing up front. So, people that listen to our Patreon-only podcast, Quest Markers, probably will remember that a few months ago, I believe, um, the main part of uh, the Quest Markers show, uh, the main segment, uh, I talked a lot about some of the ideas that you're now expressing because you made, like, a Twitter thread where you outlined a bunch of this stuff. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, (laughs) And I was just about to record Quest Markers, and I had a bunch of stuff... Uh, planned, and I scrapped the whole program for that episode <laughs> so that I could talk about that Twitter thread. Um, and I got a few things of it can, uh, jumbled, but it, uh, it's one of the reasons that I wanted to uh, interview you as well. Of course. Um, so if, anyone, if anyone's listening and they're thinking, some of this stuff sounds familiar, that may be why. <laughs> Either yeah. because I shared that Twitter thread or because you heard me talk about it. Um, but it's interesting you say that stuff about um, about having like a a large, well, not a large, a, a moderate sized, or a large compared to the other books in the line, um, core book, and then like a bunch of kind of, we're going to expand the setting books. Because I think like one of my favorite RPGs for, a, I think a, it's still my favorite RPG. It's just not one that I have much interested in, interest in playing anymore is Eclipse Phase. Mm-hmm. Um, and personally... I don't need expand new mechanics like heaps. They don't do. They didn't do that a lot in first edition. I don't know how it'll go with second edition, but they added in like a couple of new bits of gear and maybe mm. like, hey, you can model this thing this way. And then most of the supplement books are just 
setting information, and I really like that uh, compared to like a problem that I had when when my friends and I were playing um, uh, New World of Darkness, which is what we were calling it at the time, uh, was the fact that there were so many extra books, and some of them had rules that conflicted or confused rules in other books. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, and, and I, and I'm generally of the opinion that you, you don't need, I am not of the, I am not of the school of RPG design where you have a mechanic for every, a, a specific mechanic for every situation. I much prefer mm-hmm. his some general mechanics and yeah. buy them as you, as you need them. Like I'm more into flexible, s- small amount of mechanic. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so I, I I just wanted to share that. No, that, that's absolutely a good point. I um I actually did quite a bit. Well, not a lot, but I did some work on Eclipse Phase. Uh, so it's you know a really great one, and I think that it's a good example. Um, earlier on, they did have a pretty hard schedule like that. Like they did release quite a few books. Um, you know, mm-hmm. like Rimward and Panopticon and stuff like that. Um, and those are really really great books, and I feel like if they were able to do a short one of those type of things, like if they did Panopticon in 60 pages and mm-hmm. they did one a month, I probably would have like subscribed. Like I would have been deep in on that. Yeah. Um, Panopticon basically has Panopticon is both about his security stuff in the Eclipse Day setting and also the up and here's a bunch of stuff about uplifts. Like they could have done those as two different books. Exactly. Smaller. Yeah. Yeah. And like the topics, it wasn't, the, the, you don't need a lot of depth. I remember I worked on Panopticon and I did a little bit about like the social implications of a surveillance state and stuff like that. And that was all really interesting, but I didn't want to belabor the point. And I feel like a lot of times that's what you're doing whenever you have these like 150 to 200 page supplement books. It's a thing that I saw a lot with the White Wolf books. Um, they just they had to fill that page count, even though the topic wasn't necessarily robust enough to support it. Yeah, no, that's fair. Yeah. And with um, with the the new world of darkness and the new new world of darkness, the Chronicles of Darkness stuff, um, I pushed really heavily for Chronicles of Darkness to move toward more of a a, a general mechanic, and then we would give sort of ideas for take places to take that. Um, so I did a couple of things like permutations for investigation and for chases and and um, social interactions. Just and I showed the players how to sort of adapt those to other things. So I, um, I did a little bit talking about how the social mechanic rules that I had written could be applied to computer hacking, for example. Um, and the idea was to spark the, the players and the, the GM, the storyteller role, uh, to sort of improvise and take these things and design their own, um, you know, patches and applications for these rules instead of, you know, belaboring the point. And I I I don't know where they took that because I didn't go very far with that, but I, I hope that that's a thing that, you know, people could run with. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm here for that. How much of that kind of a design thing has entered into uh, machines like uh, second edition? So far it's, it's pretty influential. So machines like second edition, um, one, one of my, core goals was, like I said, to make it more concise, to focus on the experience that I wanted to have at the table. So I took what was not a very complex game, um, but 
I took the complexity of the game and I filtered it down to basically two rules. There's um, a core mechanic rule that is uh, sort of a challenge resolution thing, but it's mostly a resource allocation mechanic um, that is geared towards pacing the story. It's a horror game, so pacing is super important. Um, the pacing that you give a horror game determines what type of horror you're telling, and we're doing survivor horror. So, um, And then the other mechanic is the injury and death mechanic. Um, you know, kind of parallel to your classic RPG, like hit point type mechanic, but specifically geared toward um, the survival experience, the horror experience. Um, and those two mechanics really take up just like a couple pages. They're not very dense. And we do a section in the back of the book talking about how to hack the game for different genres. Um, we don't, we only spend like maybe eight pages really hit, hitting on that. But the idea is, is that you have these two core mechanics and you can take one out modularly and then replace it with something else and completely change the scope of the game. Because essentially you're changing 50% of the game mechanics um, just with one little hack. And we do a hack because um, the, the core game is survival. It's like um, Alien, Event Horizon, Pandorum. Um, but then we do a, um, a hack that's like Japanese style horror where you are a high school student in a haunted high school and you're armed with only a camera and your wits. Um, then there's one that's like a sort of mecha robot body horror type thing, like a little Evangelion style thing. Um, and then we have a sort of hyper-focused survivor girl story, um, which, you know, more like Halloween or something like that. And the rules are meant to, uh, to foster that avenue of play. Um, and we take these three little hacks to show how like how far you can stretch this with just a simple change, um, you know, one one shifted mechanic, one changed principle, and it's a whole different experience. Yeah, that's pretty wild. Um, yeah. For 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 those that are not aware, uh, because we're kind of we're talking about it, um, but we haven't really talked about it. Uh, what mm -hmm. is Machine Sight? Because uh, we just sort of started talking about it, and I'm like, hang on, they don't know what we're talking about. <laughs> um, other than the fact that it's a survival horror game that yeah. you have made, so it is. Um, it is a survival horror game. Um, like I said, it's. Um, it basically emulates um, Ghost Story and Space Station movies. So like Alien, Event Horizon, Pandorum, um, Life. To play this because I fucking love Pandorum. Yeah, Pandorum was actually like our first big inspiration. We we literally um, started designing machines like right after we first saw Pandorum. Um, we were like, we have to do this. Like this, this genre is underrepresented. Um, so we, we are heavily focused on that type of story. It is made for short games, one shots, um, where you expect most of the people to die because the, the sort of setting conceit of these movies is that you have a group of people, a small group that have gone to a place that they probably shouldn't be. And ultimately, they are being killed off by a thing that they don't understand. Um, you know, in Alien, it's the group of like five people in the Nostromo and they're being slaughtered by the Xenomorph. Um, you know, same thing goes with Pandorum. In Event Horizon, it's kind of similar. You've got this unknown force. Um, in Machine Zeit, the, the assumption is, is that you're on a um, space station that was or is currently tethered to the Earth. Um, because after um, after a large famine, 
a lot of people moved up into these space stations tied to the earth with space elevators. After a while, there was a solar flare that like killed the power and all of them killed all the life support. Billions of people died. And so you have these derelict space stations that are attached to earth. Um, and some researchers found that there was a special like metal that was infected with this radiation and, and morphed into something else that's like super scientifically um, valuable. It's like a perfect conductor or a um, perfect insulator, depending on how you charge it or whatever. So, you know, it's a big MacGuffin and you go up there and there are ghosts, essentially the, the, the hungry dead from these space stations have inhabited the space stations themselves. And instead of, um, you know, going for like, a monster list type of thing. We essentially have a couple of guidelines for how to make these monsters work. And it's things like the monsters are the space station, like they are metal inhabited. And then the players are empowered with the ability to make what that means a reality. Um, the players are supposed to do most of the the horror elements. Um, they're given the the narrative power to scare themselves. Huh. Um, yeah. That's a really interesting like horror twist because that means yeah. I'm going to be describing everything as vaguely avian because birds are creepy and weird. Yes. Yes. So the thing is, is that like I I grew up playing vampire and I played a lot of D and D and Ravenloft and that sort of thing. And all the time, I remember when I play when I used to play Ravenloft. Uh, I would have a DM who would come to the table with this meticulously planned adventure. And he's like, this thing is going to be so terrifying. This is going to be awful. You guys are going to be like yelling. And then we play it and it's actually kind of boring. It doesn't really do anything for us. And the reason is, is because the DM is writing something that is scary to him or her. Um, And not necessarily to us. Horror is a very personal and very individual experience, and you know how to scare yourself better than anyone else does. Uh, I I have something of a little term for that, or, oh. or a question for that. I call it. I get the question that I ask is, "What is your sushi?" Referring to the fact that H.P. Lovecraft was both terrified and mystified by sea life. <laughs> my sushi is birds. Um, yes. Because I think they're weird and cool and terrifying, and they freak me out whenever I'm near them. Um, H.P. Lovecraft didn't like fish. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And that's that's ultimately what it comes down to. From a game design perspective, it is it is literally that. Yeah. Uh, like, if, if Lovecraft were playing at the table, he would be like, okay, the monster is fish and black people. Um, yeah. <laughs> so, was yeah. mentioning H.P. Lovecraft also did was racist. Uh. Yes. So um, yeah. So the idea is is that you empower the players to scare themselves. And the um, at the beginning of play, you have your your players. We call them actors, and you have your GM, which we call a director. The oh, reason why I love it. Uh, you know, the reason why we call them a director and actors is, of course, because we're emulating movies, but also because we want to make for sure that it's not seen as a traditional GM role, because the director just starts out sort of nudging things in the right direction and making things sure that there is a momentum building, because the players are going to do most of the describing and most of the um, the driving the plot forward. And if the director is doing their job correctly and the players are really grabbing onto it and learning the rules uh, and sort of developing where the story goes, the director actually steps back and becomes a player. Um, 
and the way that we sort of present this is that whenever whenever everyone is making characters, the director is going to make a character too, and the director basically comes up with a secret that is um, something that they want to sort of drop clues about in the story. And if the players grab onto it, then that's going to bring their character in. So they might they make like a doctor who was trapped on one of the stations and for some reason is still alive. And the secret is they injected themselves with a serum that makes them forget all of the horrible things that they had to do as a space station doctor. And so... Isn't the, the, there a Lawrence Fishburne character like that in some sci-fi horror movie? Yes. <laughs> I can't remember. Like, this, this, he shows up in the middle of the film and is super weird. Is it Predators? I I can't remember, but oh my god. There I, is some... Yeah, that, that character type of the person that shows up in the mir- middle of the horror film and is super weird. Yeah. I think the way that I will describe it in supplementary books where I talk about this mechanic a little bit more is like the the actor that the studio couldn't afford to have as the marquee name, but they still want it in there. <laughs> like, So they have to come in halfway through and they only get a few minutes of screen time. So. Yeah. Like how Christopher Walken turns up in the middle of Walking to the Jungle, but that's a very different <laughs> vibe in terms of film. Yes, yes. That's, that's the, the Jean-Claude Van Damme movie, right? No, Walking to the no. Jungle's the one with um, the dude from American Pie and oh, Dwayne Johnson. Yeah, yeah. Yes, yes. Uh, Welcome to the Jungle, yes. I actually think, I think Dwayne Johnson might be in two movies that are now subtitled Welcome to the Jungle. <laughs> it sounds like very, very in character for it. <laughs> um, it's interesting that you talk about naming the, using the term director and actor to refer to the different types of player, because mm-hmm. something that we've been interested in here at Insert Quest here is picturing, is imagining the, the, the catch-all term I use now rather than storyteller or GM or whatever is facilitator. Yes. Um, is to imagine the facilitator less as a as a script writer, mm-hmm. which I think maybe is the a little bit, or, or the plot writer, I guess, which is kind of the traditional um, Dungeons and Dragons type relationship. Mm-hmm. You know, I am feeding you this plot, uh, and instead imagine them as. And this is an idea that somebody else made me aware of. I think it came up on um, as an article or something I read. Um, So it's definitely not my original idea. Um, And that is to instead imagine it in, in terms of like TV kind of terminology as a showrunner that works particularly well when we ran like apocalypse world is to imagine that your role is to ensure thematic consistency and some vague level of continuity and make adjustments when things become stale and boring. Um, It is, uh, and and that works for some games a little bit more than others. I think with investigatory games, you tend to have to take a bit more of a tighter rein. Um, But I I, I tend to like that dynamic. Um, uh, So showrunner rather than, rather than writer, for example. I think that that's actually a really, really good framing uh, showrunner type thing because, like, one of the things that we do from the um, the director standpoint is um, we 
we take a cue from Apocalypse World and that we have sort of principles and guidelines for both roles. Mm-hmm. Um, and those those guidelines, those principles are how you, um, one of the primary ways that you hack the game. Um, but one of the ones for the director that I think is particularly useful is an old sales trick where you don't let someone answer a question and just walk away. You have to ask them why. Um, you have to ask them to explain themselves. And then once they've explained themselves, you ask them to do it again and like hone in on it. And then you just ask them again. So, you know, okay, so what's in front of you? Uh, A treasure chest. Why? Huh? Don't you mean like what's in it? No, 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 no. Why? Um, Because the orcs left it here? Why? Because they, um, they had just killed something and were trying to eat it and it was too heavy. So they had to leave it here and they're going to come back later. Oh, Why? Because there's a cursed thing inside of it that will um, kill their population. If perfect, good. Well, let's roll with that. It's the orcish ark of the covenant. Yeah, because at that point you turn a random comment about a treasure chest into a driving feature of a culture. Yeah, no, that's pretty wild. Yeah, cool. I'm very much into the general uh, design aesthetics that you're kind of pointing out about um, machine uh, zeit. Which is a weird name, can I just say? I assume it's German. Yeah, it is. It, um, either time machine or machine time or machine age. Um, it's sort of up in the air. It's been used for both. Huh. That's yeah. pretty wild. Yeah. And I, I felt like it had that sort of um, that sort of weirdness and oomph that makes you ask, okay, so what is this thing? Mm. Yeah, cool. So... What are some of the things that you're hoping, because we talked about your whole, talked a little bit about your idea of kind of, here is the thing you need to play this game, and here's a bunch of stuff that is related to that game that comes out um, ongoing. I assume that that's a thing you have plans to do for Machines 8 Second Edition? Yeah, yeah. So the, Yeah, so sort- what kind of stuff do you have in mind, or what does that look like, I guess? <laughs> Well, the first thing that we plan to do is that in the setting, um, the radiation that is on these space stations and this weird metal and et cetera, et cetera, has um, mutated some people. And um, sort of like a very dark version of like X-Men type thing or more like Firestarter or something like that. Um, So people have these weird sort of psychic abilities um, that are relatively rare in the setting but they're they're they get a page or two of attention in the core book and they're generally tampered down by um by drawbacks like for example i can concentrate for a second touch a wire and travel across wherever that wire connects coming out on the other side but i have brain cancer um and a pretty sizable drawback (laughs) yeah it's a pretty big drawback but not in a one-shot game where you expect to die anyway you know yeah (laughs) so so we we have these things and we mention them and they get a little bit of attention in the core book, but we really want to show how to focus a story on them, um, give some ideas for interesting things that they can do. Um, they're unique to our game in so much as they are mostly geared towards the space station experience, the machinery, um, things that, you know, communicating through electronics, that sort of thing. Um, and we want to be able to expound upon that identity and build on it. So that's the first big thing that we want to do. Um, And by big, I mean probably 40 to 60 pages because that's our agenda. Um, And then we have a couple of ideas for some of the factions in the background of the story and how to like 
push stories specifically geared to them and their agendas. Like we have a group, um, so there's space stations, there's this special metal, whatever, um, and there's all these dead people. But we have factions, for example, there's a um, there's like a non-denominational church whose whole agenda is trying to identify the dead because billions of people died. And their, their sort of ethos is that the reason why there's these hauntings is because these people died without being remembered and identified. So if we go up and we, we identify them, then maybe they can go to rest. Okay. And, and so we want to we want to give the opportunity for players to build an experience around that. Um, we also have like an occult investigator group that um, they the after the the cataclysm where all of these stations went dead, um, the world government sort of collaborated to push it under the rug and say, you know, it was not by negligence on our fault. Like, you know, the governments couldn't have done anything. Blah 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 blah. And these guys know that it's absolute bullshit. And so they're trying to uncover the truth in a sort of X-Files lone gunman type of way. And so we want to do a book like talking about that avenue of play. We have a couple of others planned, but that's like the idea is that we want to be able to do hyper-focused experiences and very specific styles of film uh, within that genre. Right. So in terms of, I mean, you mentioned that the game is primarily focused on, and I don't even think primarily focused on, is focused on this sort of, one-shot narrative. Mm-hmm. Um, does that mean that for people that purchase these books you're, or have access to them, you're envisioning that they just play a bunch of different narrative? Because definitely within the experience of role-playing games and how people play them, it tends to be there is a focus on linked story rather than um, which is generally referred to as like campaign play or whatever, um, rather than individual one-off narrative i guess Mm -hmm. so do you envision do you envision like actually i can't even i I can think of a few examples but i'm just interested (laughs) to hear what how you how what yeah what is your response to that i guess (laughs) no no i get you i get you the the plan that we have and like the core assumption is that you have this standalone experience but you can do sequels um and because like the, the sort of nature of adults playing role-playing games, playing like more than 12 sessions is kind of rare. And I think that that will, if you want to do that style of game, we're going to have to, we're going to have to build on that because that's not the core conceit of the game, but up to say 12 movies, um, you have sequels, you have, you know, Nightmare on Elm Street, you have the Alien series, you have your Friday the 13th, your Halloweens, your whatever. And those will go for a while and they'll build with maybe a couple of characters because, you know, not everyone survives. Um, you'll have recurring villains, you'll have recurring problems. Um, you'll be in the same world with the same sort of, or not necessarily the same feel, but you'll be exploring that same um, narrative maybe from a different direction, you know, maybe with a completely different aesthetic, but you're still going on with that. So the assumption is you're probably going to play once, um, but the game builds towards sequels. And that is absolutely something that we not only um, support and encourage, but we're going to be probably doing some material on that too. I'm now imagining a, I know that there are horror movies like this, but I can't think of the name of one. Um, I'm now picturing one where it's just 
a specific space station every time and you just keep throwing different groups of people <laughs> into this space station and seeing how the narrative is different. Mm-hmm. There's got to be one that there's, there's, there's got to be a horror movie series that's just about one haunted house or something, right? And different people going to it over and over again. It sounds like there should be, if not. I, it's, it's, it's like on the tip of my tongue. It feels like it. So it's, if it's not, then it's definitely within the zeitgeist. Like, I, can think of, I can think of horror things where there's like a town that people go to because like, I mean, Silent Hill exists. Yeah, Silent Hill. Yeah. Um, that's kind of... A similar thing. Oh, and actually, I think that's a great example because the sequels, you are still going to Silent Hill, but for different reasons and with different outcomes. Yeah. I've only really seen the Silent Hill movie. Oh, oh. Yeah, there, I mean, there's a lot of good in that series. There's a the lot barb- of good. The barbed wire imagery stuck with me. It is intense. I did a yeah. lot project about it. <laughs> the, the original... Um, the original concept artist, uh, Masahiro Ito, is brilliant. He's just, like, his brain works on a different level, and it's it's amazing. <sighs> Actually, speaking of Japanese video games, I have an idea, I have had a, a question, because my understanding is you live in Japan. Sure. Yeah, I live in Tokyo. Um, what is the role-play game scene like in Japan, or is it just not a thing that you've really connected with? I haven't connected with it a whole bunch, but I am familiar with it. Um, there's, it's not a very big scene. There are a handful of tabletop RPG shops. Um, there are a lot of translated games. Mm. Um, surprisingly, Call of Cthulhu it seems to be the, the biggest here, um, at least huh. in volume. Yeah, there's a ton not of Call of Cthulhu. what I would have thought. Me either. Me either. Um, you can get Dungeons & Dragons. You can get Eclipse Phase. Um, yeah, I've seen the Eclipse Phase translation before. It's really pretty. Um but it's a pretty book to begin with. But so I, I've seen the eclipse phase. Um, apparently, they got new art for some yeah. of the morphs. I really yeah. don't like them. Yeah, it's 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 its own thing. Same with Call of Cthulhu. The Call of Cthulhu books all have new art, um, which is weird. Um, it, and like a lot of it's like you know not necessarily like exploitive, but it's like Japanese schoolgirls versus Cthulhu. And yeah, it's some it's, of the eclipse phase stuff. I'm like, why did you make this non-sexy morph? sexy yeah. it's yeah. not meant to be sexy it's meant to be deadly <laughs> what are you so, doing? some of it's pretty weird yeah the, but there are some there are some rpgs that are that are local here um there's actually quite a few but they're they're typically smaller run than even like western rpgs in the indie space huh. um i'm actually possibly going to be well possibly probably going to be doing layout for a translation of a japanese rpg um called kamigakuri which is um basically god hunters or god killers um and it's it's a really cool game where um you're playing like these people who have these superpowers and you kill sort of false gods or dark gods um and you do it in these little like pockets of reality so you're in like modern tokyo or modern wherever and you basically set up this veil this bubble of space where the people just don't pay attention and like time stands still and everything will go back to normal afterwards but that's like your battleground um it's it's a fascinating game but there's there's a lot of indie games and some of them are really really cool some of them are really interesting i remember when i visited um china for a couple of for like a week or two mm -hmm. uh, a couple of years ago when i was just sort of starting into quest here as well um i really wanted to try and find what the RPG slash 
um, tabletop gaming community was like in China, and I just had no resources to even begin yeah. trying to find out. Um, like all of the people that I could find were like Americans or Europeans living in China, and it's just like, well, no, that's not what I'm looking for. I'm looking for. <laughs> I'm not looking for the people that emigrated here for some weird engineering job. Yeah, yeah. For a couple of months, I'm looking for the people that live here full time. Mm-hmm. The other, as far as Japan goes, though, the thing that really fascinates me about the tabletop RPG scene yeah. is that um, so tabletop RPGs aren't a big thing. Um, like, you can go to some bigger bookstores and you can find like Call of Cthulhu books. You might be able to find D and D or Pathfinder or something. So weird that Call of Cthulhu is the like popular one. It is. It is. I still can't get over it, but it's totally the case. We were in a, um, a really rural area in like the mountains about two hours northeast of Tokyo or northwest of Tokyo. And um, my wife was an elementary school teacher or a middle school teacher. And one of her students played Call of Cthulhu. <laughs> like, it, it was um, it was just sort of out of the blue and surprising to find out. But yeah, it's it's pretty big is compared comparatively. Um, but the the thing that really interests me is like you can get these books in big bookstores. You can't get them just anywhere, but you can get them in big bookstores and there are tabletop RPG shops. They're a little rare, a little hard to find, but the thing that you can find everywhere in most bookstores is like actual play books. Like people will write short novels based on their game campaigns. Huh? Yeah. Which is really weird. Um, but they're very popular. They're actually more popular than the RPGs themselves. People like reading about other people's games, which I guess in America and in the West, we have like the actual plays on like RPG net and stuff. And you'll have like critical role and stuff like that, which people are or getting insert quest here or insert quest here. Yeah. 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 And so people are interested in that, but in Japan, like there's a, a market for published books. There's a lot of them. Um, in fact, one of the um, one of the most like well known uh, fantasy anime is uh, Record of Lodos War, which um, is actually based on an actual play of the the show creators D and D game. Are those the same people that made Fate Zero and Aldenoa Zero and I Fate Stay Night and stuff? Maybe I'm not sure. I'm not. I sure. just remember a few years ago I heard that the people that had made those because those three products and um, the three those three animes are made by the same like art team. I it's don't highly possible. I don't uh, know. A lot they about they that. were making an anime about a D and D game that they'd done. So yeah, then that was probably it. Yeah, the but that's a classic from the '80s, and it was okay. It's just well, it's crisp. not that then because this was oh, like okay. 2015. Oh, 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 then I don't know. I mean, who knows? It could be a reboot or something. But yeah, yeah, like Record of Lodos War is a classic from the early 80s. And it is literally just straight jacked from the creator's D&D game in the way that like Hawk the Slayer was. Mm -hmm. Um, It's it just serial numbers filed off, but it's exactly that. And that's that's a classic in in Japanese RPGs um, and Japanese RPG space. And so that's a really cool tradition that I think is neat uh, is the the sort of metafiction that arises out of it and how that is a thing that people like to consume without consuming the games because you can buy them in an average bookstore. You can't buy the games. So there are people who go to these bookstores, they buy these things to read other people's games, but they're not playing them. They're just reading them. That's pretty wild. I heard of, I heard of someone, I've heard of people that listen to and or watch 
actual play content, but they have no interest in role-playing games. It's not the situation of they don't have anyone to play role-playing games with. It's that they don't even want to play role-playing yeah. games. They just enjoy see. listening to it. Yeah, yeah. I could see being into the experience of like witnessing it, but not wanting to... Because playing a role-playing game is, is kind of taxing. Um, you know, it takes a little bit of like emotional weight Mm. Um, you, you have to be invested and that can be like, even if it's not like, you know, scary or anxiety inducing, it's still, it's a, it's a lot of, a lot of, oomph. it's a lot of you that has to go into it. Yeah. I assume that like watching a, I mean, watching an actual play or whatever with no real interest in role-playing games, I assume that it is a similar experience to like a, I mean, I, I, I want to say, like, improvisational theater and stuff. It's just that yeah. lots of improvisational theater that I know is done for comedy where I don't yeah, actually, I was gonna say, it's like, I don't um, actually like that many humor-focused actual plays because I'm like, yeah. I can get comedy anywhere. Give me, give me, something, give me something more. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, I was going to make that parallel, too. It's like, you know, whose line is it anyway? But for nerds. Um, yeah, 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 whose line is it anyway? Is it for nerds? I mean, of course it is. Like they make D and D too, but <laughs> the, the the comparison stands up a little bit. Comparison <laughs> still works. It's just, but yeah, it's about the improv. It's about the personalities and the way that they bounce off of each other live. It's very organic. Yeah, that's pretty wild to think about. Yeah. Um, but thank you for that. That for helping me with that tangent about uh, Japan's RPG scene. Of course. Um, so I I normally like to ask people towards the end of the interview, not that we're right at the end, but towards the end of the interview, what they have planned for the future. So what are maybe some of the other projects that you're working on or looking to start work on or um, or occasionally we ask people, we get people telling us about like really wild games that they've always wanted to make but never have had an opportunity to, uh, things like that. Anything like so- that jump, anything jump to your mind? Yeah, so I'm really excited about the re-release of Machine Zite because it's our first official game. My wife and I, it's our first published game um, on our own, and we're coming back to it after all this time. And it was really fun taking that experience and then just like re-honing it with a a decade of lessons. Um, So I think that one of the things that like my wife really wants to do is do um, her first solo game, which is called Flatpak Fix the Future. and she wants to redo it with fate. And because it sounds really, really interesting, I hope she lets me help her. Um, so that's a thing. Um, and so that, that would be one of them. And I, the next big thing that I really want to do is um, I, I have a sort of urban fantasy thing in mind that is um, set kind of in the world of the novels that I write. I've got five novels in a vague, loosely tied series um, and they're all set in a fictitious world that's very similar to ours, but a little different. And the idea Stand would be... It. Yeah, cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, like the equivalent of um, Santa Clarita from The Lost Boys. Um, I, it's close to our world, but I don't have to follow all of the same rules. Um, and it's, a, it's an urban fantasy, like a sort of World of Darkness style game, but more focused on sort of the... The gothic elements, like not like the the wearing hot topic clothes, but like the sensory elements and the experiencing the world, um, the investigating and uncovering things um, side of things. Um, 
And so I want to do that. It's uh, tentatively called More Than Night, uh, based on an old Raymond Chandler quote. Um, so that's that's a thing. I really want to do that um, because I've been, you know, knee deep in the world of my my novels, my fiction space, and I keep running into situations where I'm like, this is how I would do this in game. This is how I want to do this in a game, and I just, I at some point I have to, I have to get it down on page, and I have to share it with the world. Yeah. Wow. Sounds pretty cool. Yeah. Um, well, I think I think we might have to say goodnight there. Yeah. Uh, thank you so much for coming on the show. If people want to find out more about your work uh, or follow along uh, with your projects, where can they find that stuff? Okay, so... Um, and and we'll it? have links to all of the things mentioned here uh, down below. If you're searching for that, just go to the main website and in the description of the episode, there will be uh, links uh, to everything that uh, Liv is about to mention. <laughs> okay, so um, the the place where I do most of my random design discussion is my Twitter account, which is at Machine IV, like Machine Roman numeral four. Um, that's just random discussion. As far as our publishing projects, our games are concerned, um, you really want to go to MachineAge.Tokyo. So our website for our publishing. Um, and for my fiction work and solo projects, you want to go to oliviahill.tokyo. Um, so those are the big ones. Um, I mean, you can also, we have um, Twitter and Facebook accounts for our publishing, which are at Machine Age or Machine Age Productions. Um, so that's that's probably it. Like you can find all of our games on DriveThruRPG. That's, you know, they're the market leader as far as that goes. So you can find them all there. That's where you can get Machine Zeit and all of our older stuff. And um, our fiction, our, uh, the novels and stuff, those are all on Amazon. And you can just find them under my name, Olivia Hill. Cool. Fantastic. Um, thank you so much for uh, chatting with me today. It's always wonderful to talk to, uh, talk to uh, designers that have had an influence on me. Thank um, you. Uh, although m- much of your influence, I didn't even realize uh, you'd had <laughs> until a few uh, a few months ago uh, yeah, when I yeah. first found you on Twitter. Uh, but thank <laughs> you so much for talking uh, talking to us. I think uh, I think you're probably the person that has, I guess the the most the the longest career in the game design industry that I've talked to on the show. Oh, good. Uh, yeah, which is kind of cool. Um, <laughs> But thank you so much for coming on. Um, and if you want to hear more interviews like this one, you can find it by clicking the interviews tag or the interviews category uh, down the bottom of uh, this episode. Uh, if you're on SoundCloud, we have an interviews playlist. Um, there's also an interviews menu at the top of the WordPress uh, of the main InsertQuest here site. Because um, it occurs to me, we now have it. We, by the time this episode goes out, we'll be on insertquesthere.com, not insertquesthere.wordpress.com. <laughs> um, uh, but uh, yeah, and if you feel, uh, if you want to check out some other stuff by us, we have actual plays as well. Uh, but thank you so much for coming on. It is a pleasure uh, and has been a pleasure. Uh, but, yeah. for, but for now, uh, farewell from the past. I'm Ray. 